Part One of Doctor Marigold by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algy Pug. Charles Dickens' Two Hundredth Anniversary Collection, Volume Three. Doctor Marigold by Charles Dickens. Part One. I am a cheap jack, and my own father's name was Willem Marigold. It was in his lifetime supposed by some that his name was William, but my own father always consistently said, no, it was Willem, on which point I content myself with looking at the argument this way. If a man is not allowed to know his own name in a free country, how much is he allowed to know in a land of slavery? As to looking at the argument through the medium of the register, Willem Marigold come into the world before registers come up much, and went out of it too. They wouldn't have been greatly in his line neither, if they had chanced to come up before him. I was born on the Queen's Highway, but it was the King's at that time. A doctor was fetched to my own mother by my own father, and when it took place on a common, and in consequence of his being a very kind gentleman, and accepting no fee but a tea tray, I was named Doctor out of gratitude and compliment to him. There you have me, Dr. Marigold. I am at present a middle-aged man of a broadish build, in cords, leggings, and a sleeved waistcoat, strings of which have always gone behind. Repair them how you will, they go like fiddle-strings. You have been to the theatre, and you have seen one of them violin players screw up his violin after listening to it as if it had been whispering the secret to him that it feared it was out of order, and then you have heard it snap. That's as exactly similar to my waistcoat as a waistcoat and a violin can be like one another. I am partial to a white hat, and I like a shawl round my neck, wore loose and easy. Sitting down is my favourite posture. If I have a taste in point of personal jewellery, it is mother of pearl buttons. There you have me again, as large as life. The doctor, having accepted a tea tray, you'll guess that my father was a cheap jack before me. You are right, he was. It was a pretty tray. It represented a large lady going along a serpentining uphill gravel walk to attend a little church. Two swans had likewise come astray with the same intentions. When I call her a large lady, I don't mean in point of breadth, for there she fell well below my views, but she more than made it up in height. Her height and slimness was, in short, the height of both. I often saw that tray, after I was the innocently smiling cause, or more likely screeching one, of the doctor standing up on a table against the wall in his consulting room. Whenever my father and mother were in that part of the country, I used to put my head, I have heard my own mother say it was flax and curls at that time, though you wouldn't know an old half-broom from it now till you come to the handle and found it wasn't me, in at the doctor's door, and the doctor was always glad to see me, and said, Aha, my brother practitioner, come in, little M.D., how are your inclinations as to sixpence? You can't go on for ever, you'll find, nor yet good my father, nor yet my mother. If you don't go off as a whole when you are about due, you're liable to go off in part, and two to one your head's the part. Gradually my father went off his, and my mother went off hers. 
It was in a harmless way, but it put out a family where I boarded them. The old couple, though retired, got to be wholly and solely devoted to the cheapjack business, and were always selling the family off. Whenever the cloth was laid for dinner, my father began rattling the plates and dishes, as we do in our line when we put up crockery for a bid, only he had lost the trick of it, and mostly let em drop and broke em. As the old lady had been used to sit in the cart, and hand the articles out one by one to the old gentleman on the footboard to sell, just in the same way she handed him every item of the family's property, and they disposed of it in their own imaginations from morning to night. At last the old gentleman, lying bedridden in the same room with the old lady, cries out in the old patter, fluent after having been silent for two days and nights, Now here, my jolly companions, every one, which a nightingale club in a village was held, at the sign of the cabbage and shears, where the singers no doubt would have greatly excelled but for want of taste, voices and ears. Now here, my jolly companions, every one, is a working model of a used-up old cheapjack, without a tooth in his head, and with a paint in every bone, so lifelike it would be just as good if it wasn't better, just as bad if it wasn't worse, and just as new if it wasn't worn out. Bid for the working model of the old cheapjack, who has drunk more gunpowder tea with the ladies in his time than would blow the lid off a washwoman's copper, and carry as many thousands of miles higher than the moon as naught nicks naught divided by the national debt carry nothing to the poor rates three under and two over now my arts of oak and men of straw what you say for the lot two shillings a shilling kempence eightpence sixpence fourpence tuppence who said tuppence the gentleman in the scarecrow's hat i'm ashamed of the gentleman in the scarecrow's hat i really am ashamed of him for his want of public spirit now i'll tell you what i'll do with you come I'll throw you in a working model of an old woman that was married to the old cheapjack so long ago that, upon my word and honour, it took place in Noah's Ark, before the unicorn could get in to forbid the bands by blowing a tune on his horn. There now, come, what you say for both? I'll tell you what I'll do with you. I don't bear you malice for being so backward. Here, if you make me a bit that'll only reflect a little credit on your town, I'll throw in a warming pan for nothing, and lend you a toasting fork for life. Now come, what do you say after that splendid offer? Say two pounds, say thirty shillings, say a pound, say ten shillings, say five, say two and six. You don't even say two and six? You say two and three? No, you shan't have the lot for two and three. I'd rather give it to you, if you was good-looking enough. Here, missus. Chuck the old man and woman into the car, put the horse to, and drive him away and bury him. Such were the last words of Willem Marigold, my own father, and they were carried out by him and his wife, my own mother, on one and the same day, as I ought to know, having followed as mourner. My father had been a lovely one in his time at the cheap jack work, as his dying observations went to prove, but I top him. I don't say because it's myself, but because it has been universally acknowledged by all that it's had the means of comparison. I have worked at it. I have measured myself against other public speakers, members of parliament, platforms, pulpits, counsel learned in the law, and where I have found them good, 
I have took a bit of imagination from em, and where I have found em bad, I have let em alone. Now I'll tell you what, I mean to go down into my grave, declaring that of all the callings ill-used in Great Britain, the cheap jack calling is the worst used. Why ain't we a profession? Why ain't we endowed with privileges? Why are we forced to take out a hawker's license when no such thing is expected of the political hawkers? Where's the difference betwixt us? Except that we are cheap jacks, and they are dear jacks, I don't see any difference but what's in our favour. For, look here, say it's election time. I'm on the footboard of my cart in the marketplace on a Saturday night. I put up a general miscellaneous lot. I say, now here, my free and independent woters, I'm a-going to give you such a chance as you never had in all your born days, nor yet the days preceding. Now I'll show you what I'm a-going to do with you. Here's a pair of razors that'll shave you closer than the board of guardians. Here's a flat iron worth his weight in gold. Here's a frying pan artificially flavoured with essence of beefsteaks to that degree that you've only got for the rest of your lives to fry bread and dripping in it, and there you are replete with animal food. Here's a genuine chronometer watch in such a solid silver case that you may knock at the door with it when you come home late from a social meeting and rouse your wife and family and save up your knocker for the postman. And here's half a dozen dinner plates that you may play the cymbals with to charm baby when it's fractious. Stop! I'll throw in another article and I'll give you that and it's a rolling pin and if the baby can only get it well into its mouth when its teeth is coming and rub the gums once with it they'll come through double in a fit of laughter equal to being tickled stop again i'll throw in another article cause i don't like the looks of you cause you have the appearance of buyers unless i lose by you and because i'd rather lose than not take money to-night and there's a looking-glass in which you may see how ugly you look when you don't bid what do you say now Come. Do you say a pound? Not you, for you haven't got it. Do you say ten shillings? Not you, for you owe more to the tally man. Well, then, I'll tell you what I'll do with you. I'll heap them all on the footboard of the cart. There they are. Razors, flat watch, dinner plates, rolling pin, and away for four shillings, and I'll give you sixpence for your trouble. This is me, the cheap jack. But on the Monday morning, in the same marketplace, comes the dear Jack on the hustings, his cart, and what does he say? Now, my free and independent woters, I am a-going to give you such a chance, he begins just like me, as you never had in all your born days, and that's the chance of sending myself to Parliament. Now I'll tell you what I'm a-going to do for you. Here's the interests of this magnificent town promoted above all the rest of the civilised and uncivilised earth is your railways carried and your neighbours railways jockeyed here's all your sons in the post office here's britannia smiling on you here's the eyes of europe on you here's a universal property for you repletion of animal food golden cornfields gladsome homesteads and rounds of applause from your own arts all in one lot and that's myself will you take me as i stand you won't well then I'll tell you what I'll do with you. Come now. I'll throw in anything you ask for. There. Church rates. Abolition of more malt tax. No malt tax. Universal education to the highest mark, or universal ignorance to the lowest. 
total abolition of flogging in the army, or a dozen for every private once a month all round. Wrongs of men or rights of women, only say what he shall be, take em or leave em, and I'm of your opinion altogether, and the lot's your own on your own terms. There. You won't take it yet? Well, then, I'll tell you what I'll do with you. Come. You are such free and independent woters, and I am so proud of you. You are such a noble and enlightened constituency, and I am so ambitious of the honour and dignity of being your member, which is by far the highest level to which the wings of the human mind can soar, that I'll tell you what I'll do with you. I'll throw in all the public houses in your magnificent town for nothing. Will that content you? It won't? You won't take the lot yet? Well, then, before I put the horse in and drive away, and make the offer to the next most magnificent town that can be discovered, I'll tell you what I'll do. Take the lot, and I'll drop two thousand pounds in the streets of your magnificent town for them for pick up that can. Not enough? Now, look here, this is the very farthest that I'm a-going to. I'll make it two thousand five hundred. And still you won't? Here, missus, put the horse. No, stop half a minute. I shouldn't like to turn my back upon you neither for a trifle. I'll make it two thousand seven hundred and fifty pound. There. Take the lot on your own terms, and I'll count out two thousand seven hundred and fifty pound on the footboard of the cart to be dropped in the streets of your magnificent town for them to pick up that can. What do you say? Come now, you won't do better, and you may do worse. You take it. Hooray! sold again and got the seat these dear jacks soak the people shameful but we cheap jacks don't we tell em the truth about themselves to their faces and scorn to court em as to wenchemness in the way of puffing up the lots the dear jacks beat us hollow it is considered in the cheap jack calling that better patter can be made out of a gun than any article we put up from the cart except a pair of spectacles I often hold forth about a gun for a quarter of an hour, and feel as if I need never leave off. But when I tell them what the gun can do, and what the gun has brought down, I never go half so far as the dear jacks do when they make speeches in praise of their guns, their great guns that set them on to do it. Besides, I'm in business for myself. I ain't sent down to the marketplace to order, as they are. Besides, again, my guns don't know what I say in their laudation, and their guns do, and the whole concern of them have reason to be sick and ashamed all round. These are some of my arguments for declaring that the cheap jack calling is treated ill in Great Britain, and for turning warm when I think of the other jacks in question setting themselves up to pretend to look down upon it. I courted my wife from the footboard of the cart. I did indeed. She was a Suffolk young woman, and it was in Ipswich Marketplace right opposite the corn chandler's shop. I had noticed her up at a window, last Saturday that was, appreciating highly. I had took to her, and I said to myself, If not already disposed of, I'll have that lot. Next Saturday that come, I pitched the cart on the same pitch, and I was in very high fever indeed, keeping him laughing the whole of the time, and getting off the goods briskly. At last I took out of my waistcoat pocket a small lot wrapped in soft paper, and I put it this way, looking up at the window where she was. 
now here my blooming english maidens is an article the last article of the present evening's sale which i offer to only you the lovely suffolk dumplings boiling over with beauty and i won't take a bit of a thousand pounds for from any man alive now what is it why i'll tell you what it is it's made of fine gold and it's not broke though there's a hole in the middle of it and it's stronger than any fetter that ever was forged though it's smaller than any finger in my set of ten why ten because when my parents made over my property to me i tell you true there was twelve sheets twelve towels twelve tablecloths twelve knives twelve forks twelve tablespoons and twelve teaspoons but my set of fingers was too short of a dozen and could never since be matched now what else is it come i'll tell you it's a hoop of solid gold wrapped in a silver curl paper that i myself took off the shining locks of the ever beautiful old lady in threadneedle street london city i wouldn't tell you so if i hadn't the paper to show or you mightn't believe it even of me now what else is it it's a man trap and a handcuff the parish stocks and a leg lock all in gold and all in one now what else is it it's a wedding ring now i tell you what i'm a-going to do with it i'm not a-going to offer this lot for money but i mean to give it to the next of your beauties that laughs and i'll pay her a visit to-morrow morning at exactly half after nine o'clock as the chimes go and i'll take her out for a walk to put up the bands she laughed and got the ring handed up to her when i called in the morning she says oh dear it's never you and you never mean it it's ever me says i i am ever yours and i ever mean it so we got married after being put up three times which by the by is quite in the cheapjack way again and shows once more how the cheapjack customs pervade society she wasn't a bad wife but she had a temper if she could have parted with that one article at a sacrifice i wouldn't have swapped her away in exchange for any other woman in england not that i ever did swap her away for we lived together till she died and that was thirteen year now my lords and ladies and gentlefolks all i'll let you into a secret though you won't believe it thirteen year of temper in a palace would try the worst of you but thirteen year of temper in a car would try the best of you you are kept so very close to it in a cart you see there's thousands of couples among you getting on like a sweet oil upon a wet stone in houses five and six pairs of stairs high that would go to the divorce court in a cart whether the jolting makes it worse i don't undertake to decide but in a cart it does come home to you and stick to you violence in a cart is so violent and aggravation in a cart is so aggravating we might have had such a pleasant life a roomy cart with the large goods hung outside and the bed slung underneath it went on the road an iron pot and a kettle a fireplace for the cold weather a chimney for the smoke a hanging shelf and a cupboard a dog and a horse what more do you want you draw off on upon a bit of turf in a green lane or by the roadside you hobble your old horse and turn him grazing you light your fire upon the ashes of the last visitors you cook your stew and you wouldn't call the emperor of france your father but have a temper in the cart flinging language and hardest goods in stock at you and where are you then put a name to your feelings my dog knew as well when she was on the turn as i did before she broke out he would give a howl and bolt 
How he knew it was a mystery to me, but the sure and certain knowledge of it would wake him up out of his soundest sleep, and he would give a howl and bolt. At such times I wish I was him. The worst of it was we had a daughter born to us, and I loved children with all my heart. When she was in her furies, she beat the child. This got to be so shocking, as the child got to be four or five year old, that I have many a time gone on with my whip over my shoulder at the old horse's head, sobbing and crying worse than ever little Sophie did. For how could I prevent it? Such a thing is not to be tried with such a temper, in a cart, without coming to a fight. It's in the natural size and formation of a cart to bring it to a fight. And then the poor child got worse terrified than before, as well as worse hurt generally, and her mother made complaints to the next people he lighted on, and the word went round, here's a wretch of a cheap jack been a-beating his wife. Little Sophie was such a brave child. She grew to be quite devoted to her poor father, though he could do so little to help her. She had a wonderful quantity of shining dark hair, all curling natural about her. It's quite astonishing to me now that I didn't go tearing mad when I used to see her run from her mother before the car and her mother catch her by this air and pull her down to it and beat her. Such a brave child, I said she was. Ah, with reason. Don't you mind next time, father, dear, she would whisper to me, with her little face still flushed and her bright eyes still wet. If I don't cry out, you may know I am not much hurt, and if I do cry out, it will be only to get mother to let go and leave off. What I've seen this little spirit bear for me without crying out. Yet in other respects her mother took great care of her. Her clothes were always clean and neat, and her mother was never tired of working at them. Such is the inconsistency of things. Our being down in the marsh country in unhealthy weather, I consider the cause of Sophie's taking bad low fever. But however she took it, once she got it, she turned away from her mother for evermore, and nothing would ever persuade her to be touched by her mother's hand. She would shiver and say, No, 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 when it was offered at, and would hide her face at my shoulder and hold me tight round the neck. The cheapjack business had been worse than ever I had known it, what with one thing and what with another, and not least with railroads, which will cut it all to pieces, I expect, at last, and I was run dry of money. For which reason, one night at that period of little Sophie's being so bad, either we must come to a deadlock for victuals and a drink, or I must have pitched the cart, as I did. I couldn't get a dear child to lie down, or leave go of me, and indeed I hadn't the heart to try, and I stepped out on the footboard with her holding round my neck. They all set up a laugh when they see us, and one chuckled at a joshkin, that I hated for it, made the bidding. Tuppence for her. Now you country boobies, says I, feeling as if my art was a heavy weight at the end of a broken sash line. I give you notice that I'm a-going to charm the money out of your pockets and give you so much more than your money's worth that you'll only persuade yourselves to draw your Saturday night's wages ever again afterwards by the hope of meeting me to lay em out with, which you never will, and why not? because I've made my fortunes by selling my goods on a large scale for 75% less than I give for them, and I'm consequently to be elevated to the House of Peers next week by the title of the Duke of Cheap and Marcus Jacqueline Now let us know what you want tonight, and she'll have it. 
But first of all, shall I tell you why I've got this little girl round my neck? You don't want to know? Then you shall. She belongs to the fairies. She's a fortune teller. She can tell me all about you in a whisper, and can put me up to whether you are going to buy a lot or leave it. Now, do you want a saw? No, she says you don't, because you're too clumsy to use one. Else here's a saw which would be a lifelong blessing to a handy man, at four shillings, at three and six, at three, at two and six, at two, at eighteen pence. But none of you shall have it at any price, on account of your well-known awkwardness, which would make it manslaughter. The same objection applies to this set of free planes, which I won't let you have neither, so don't bid for em. Now I'm a-going to ask you what you want. Then I whispered, your head burned so that I'm afraid it hurt you bad, my pet, and she answered, without opening her heavy eyes, just a little father. Oh, this little fortune teller says it's a memorandum book you want. Then why didn't you mention it? Here it is. Look at it. Two hundred superfine hot-pressed wire-wove pages. If you don't believe me, count em. Ready ruled for your expenses. An everlastingly pointed pencil to put em down with. A double-bladed penknife to scratch em out with. A book of printed tables to calculate your income with. And a campstool to sit down upon while you give your mind to it. Stop! and an umbrella to keep the moon off when you give your mind to it on a pitch-dark night. Now, I won't ask you how much for the lot, but how little, how little are you thinking of? Don't be ashamed to mention it, cause my fortune-teller knows already. Then, making believe to whisper, I kissed her, and she kissed me. Why, she says you're already thinking of as little as three and threepence. I couldn't have believed it, even of you, unless she told me. Three and threepence and a set of printed tables in the lot that will calculate your income up to forty thousand a year. With an income of forty thousand a year, you grudge three and sixpence. Well, then, I'll tell you my opinion. I so despise the threepence that I'd rather take three shillings. There. For three shillings, three shillings, three shillings. Gone. Hand em over to the lucky man. As there had been no bid at all, everyone looked about and grinned at everybody, while I touched little Sophie's face, and asked her if she felt faint or giddy. Not very, father. It will soon be over. Then turning from the pretty patient eyes, which were open now, and seeing nothing but grins across my light of grease-pot, I went on again in my cheap jack style. Where's the butcher? My sorrowful eye just caught sight of a fat young butcher on the outside of the crowd. She says good luck is the butcher's. Where is he? Everyone added on the blushing butcher to the front, and there was a roar, and the butcher felt himself obliged to put his hand in his pocket and take the lot. The party, so picked out in general, does feel obliged to take the lot. Good four times out of six. Then we had another lot, the counterpart of that one, and sold it sixpence cheaper, which is always very much enjoyed. Then we had the spectacles. It ain't a special profitable lot but I put them on, and I see what the Chancellor of the Exchequer is going to take off the taxes, and I see what the sweetheart of the young woman in the shawl is doing at home, and I see what the bishops has got for dinner, and a deal more that seldom fails to fetch them up in their spirits, and the better their spirits, the better their bids. Then we had the ladies' lot, the teapot, tea caddy, glass, sugar basin, half a dozen spoons, and caudal cup, and all the time I was making similar excuses to give a look or two, or say a word or two, to my poor child. It was while the second lady's lot was holding him in chains I felt her lift herself a little on my shoulder, to look across the dark street. What troubles you, darling? 
Nothing troubles me, father. I'm not at all troubled. But don't I see a pretty churchyard over there? Yes, my dear. Kiss me twice, dear father, and lay me down to rest upon that churchyard grass so soft and green. I stagger back into the car with her head dropped on my shoulder, and I says to her mother, Quick, shut the door. Don't let those laughing people see. What's the matter? she cries. Oh, woman, woman, I tells her, you'll never catch my little Sophie by her hair again, for she has flown away from you. Maybe those were harder words than I meant them, but from that time forth my wife took to brooding, and will sit in the car or walk beside it, hours at a stretch, with her arms crossed, and her eyes looking on the ground. When her furies took her, which was rather seldomer than before, they took her in a new way, and she banged herself about to that extent that I was forced to hold her. She got none the better for a little drink now and then, and through some years I used to wonder, as I plodded along at the old horse's head, whether there were many carts upon the road that held so much dreariness as mine, for all my being looked up to as the king of the cheapjacks. So sad our lives went on, till one summer evening, when, as we were coming into Exeter, out of the farther west of England, we saw a woman beating a child in a cruel manner who screamed, Don't beat me! Oh, mother! mother mother then my wife stopped her ears ran away like a wild thing the next day she was found in the river me and my dog were all the company left in the cart now and the dog learned to give a short bark when they wouldn't bid and to give another and a nod of his head when i asked him who said half a crown are you the gentleman sir that offered half a crown he attained to an immense height of popularity, and I shall always believe taught himself entirely out of his own head to growl at any person in the crowd that bid as low as sixpence. But he got to be well on in years, and one night when I was convulsing York with the spectacles, he took a convulsion on his own account upon the very footboard by me, and it finished him. Being naturally of a tender turn, I had dreadful lonely feelings on me after this. I conquered them at selling times, having a reputation to keep, not to mention keeping myself, but they got me down in private and rolled upon me. That's often the way with us public characters. See us on the footboard, and you'd give pretty well anything you possess to be us. See us off the footboard, and you'd add a trifle to be off your bargain. It was under these circumstances that I had become acquainted with a giant. I might have been too high to fall in conversation with him, had it not been for my lonely feelings. For the general rule is, going round the country, to draw the line at dressing up. When a man can't trust his getting a living to his undisguised abilities, you consider him below your sort, and this giant, when on view, figured as a Roman. He was a languid young man, which I attribute to the distance betwixt his extremities, he had a little head and less in it he had weak eyes and weak knees and altogether you couldn't look at him without feeling that there was greatly too much of him both for his joints and his mind but he was an amiable though timid young man his mother let him out and spent the money and we became acquainted when he was walking to ease the horse twixt two fairs he was called ronaldo de velasco his name being pickleson this giant otherwise Pickleson, mentioned to me under the seal of confidence that, beyond his being a burden to himself, his life was made a burden to him by the cruelty of his master towards a stepdaughter who was deaf and dumb. Her mother was dead, and she had no living soul to take her part, and was used most hard. She travelled with his master's caravan only because there was nowhere to leave her, and this giant, 
otherwise Pickleson, did go so far to believe that his master often tried to lose her. He was such a very languid young man, though I don't know how long it didn't take him to get this story out, but it passed through his defective circulation to his top extremity in course of time. When I heard this account from the giant, otherwise Pickleson, and likewise that the girl had beautiful long dark hair, and was often pulled down by and beaten, I couldn't see the giant through what stood in my eyes. Having wiped him, I give him sixpence, for he was kept as short as he was long, and he laid it out in two penneth of gin and water, which so brisked him up that he sang his favourite comic of shivery shaky, ain't ye cold? a popular effect which his master had tried every other means to get out of him as a roman wholly in vain his master's name was mim a wary horse man and i knew him to speak to i went to that fair as a mere civilian leaving the car outside the town and i looked about the back of the vans while the performing was going on and at last sitting dozing against a muddy cartwheel i come across the poor girl who was deaf and dumb at the first look I might have almost judged that he had escaped from the wild beast show, but at the second I thought better of her, and thought that if she were more cared for and more kindly used, she would be like my child. She was just the same age as my own daughter would have been if her pretty head had not fell down upon my shoulder that unfortunate night. To cut it short, I spoke confidential to Mim, while he was beating the gong outside betwixt two lots of Pickleson's publics, and I put it to him. She lies heavy on your own hands. What'll you take for her? Mim was a most ferocious swearer. Suppressing that part of his reply, which was much the longest part, his reply was, A pair of braces. Now I'll tell you, says I, what I'm a-going to do with you. I'm a-going to fetch you half a dozen of the primest braces in the cart, and then to take her away with me. Says Mim, again ferocious, I'll believe it when I got the goods, and no sooner. I made all the haste I could, lest he should think twice of it, and the bargain was completed, which Pickleson, he was thereby so relieved in his mind that he come out at his little back door, long ways like a serpent, and give a shivery shaky in a whisper among the wheels at parting. End of Part 1 of Dr. Marigold by Charles Dickens